0: So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Are pro-life advocates inconsistent and does it matter if they are? Welcome to the Pro-Life Thinking Podcast, a podcast that trains you how to make the pro-life case effectively and persuasively. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and uh, joining me is my co-host Nathan Apodaca. How's it going, Nathan? Oh, it's doing pretty well. The topic that we have for today is on pro-life hypocrisy, and I'm going to go ahead and share my screen because my purpose for today is to talk about a paper that was recently published by three of my colleagues uh, and you know their friends also, but. Nick Colgrove, Bruce Blackshaw, and Daniel Roger published an article in Journal of Medical Ethics called "Pro-Life Hypocrisy: Why Inconsistency Arguments Do Not Matter." We're not going to cover the entire paper. We want to cover what consistency arguments are and what their response to these kinds of arguments are? I do have access to the full paper. If uh, any of our listeners would like the paper, they can email me, and I'll uh, I can send them a copy of it so they they can read the whole thing. This is not something I can really just provide a link to in the show notes. So if you want a copy of this article, you can email me at our email. And I set up an email for the Pro-Life Thinking podcast. So you can email email me at prolifethinking at gmail.com and then request a copy of this paper and I'll, I'll uh, email one to you. You know, just uh, briefly speaking, just uh, again, in a nutshell, inconsistency arguments are arguments that because pro-life people hold a view that embryos and fetuses are persons, this leads them to inconsistent behavior because their view that embryos and fetuses are persons should lead them to certain behavior, but they're not engaging in this behavior. And so therefore they're inconsistent with the view that they hold. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just going to read a couple of the sections here and uh, Nathan and I, will just uh, we'll, we'll discuss them real quick if there's anything more that needs to be said. So I'll start here with the introduction. It says, opponents of abortion are frequently described as, quote, inconsistent, end quote. For example, it is claimed that they quote, care too little, end quote, about preventing spontaneous abortion, they fail to protect surplus cryopreserved embryos via embryo adoption, and they refuse to adopt unwanted children. We will call such arguments, quote, inconsistency arguments, end quote. This is because they try to show that opponents of abortion are inconsistent in some manner. They do not act in accordance with the beliefs they hold that ground their opposition to abortion. In other words, they are hypocrites, Details between inconsistency arguments vary, but the general strategy is the same. Each specifies what consistent opponents of abortion would do or believe, and then argues that opponents of abortion typically fail to do or believe whatever it is that consistency demands. This gives opponents of abortion two options. One, stop being opponents of abortion, or two, adjust their actions and beliefs in ways that critics suggest they should to meet the demands of consistency. Here, we examine the logical structure of inconsistency arguments and identify several flaws they share. This allows us to undermine a wide variety of inconsistency arguments at once. We conclude that even when inconsistency arguments are successful, they are either insignificant or promote troubling consequences for critics. So here in the introduction, Colgrove et al. are essentially saying that these are the kinds of inconsistency arguments that are often leveled, uh, arguments such as Pro-life people care too little about preventing spontaneous abortion, and spontaneous abortion, of course, is just the academic term for a miscarriage. So pro-life people care too little about preventing miscarriages. They fail to protect surplus cryopreserved embryos, for example, by adopting an embryo and then uh, they refuse to adopt unwanted children. They group all of these arguments into one group and call them inconsistency arguments. There's two things we need to be clear that they're not saying here in the paper. That number one, they're not saying that absolutely no pro-life people are inconsistent. So their arguments here do not imply that there are no inconsistent pro-lifers. So that's one thing we need to to get out of the way here. But number two is that they're not arguing against each of these. So for example, they're not arguing that pro-lifers should or should not care more about miscarriages. They're not arguing pro-life people should or should not care more about cryopreserved embryos, etc. All they're doing here is they're showing the weakness of inconsistency arguments themselves. So you're not going to see a rebuttal of these inconsistency arguments themselves. You're just going to basically see a rebuttal of the class of inconsistency arguments grouped together. I think right
1: off the bat, we should also just clarify what the pro-life position is and just lay out what our argument is, because I think that's one problem that a lot of pro-choice people have is they actually don't take the time to understand our position. So it's simply this. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, elective abortion is wrong. Now, we might be inconsistent in how we apply those principles, and that's entirely possible. We're only human after all, but. They show that the inconsistency arguments, quite literally in the title, they simply don't matter in the long run, uh, even if they are correct. I mean, even if we are inconsistent on some things, it doesn't undermine our argument that abortion is wrong. You have to actually address the essential argument we are making.
0: Right. And that's another thing about this paper, too, is that. A pro-life person who is talking to a pro-choice person, say a friend or family member or someone in their sphere of influence, if they bring up some kind of inconsistency argument, then the pro-life person could reasonably respond, well, my argument is that abortion is wrong because it kills unborn children. And so whether or not pro-life people are inconsistent doesn't matter because that doesn't argue against my actual argument. So in reality, it's just a red herring. You're not responding to my argument. You're just trying to argue that pro-life people are inconsistent. Uh, so on top of being a red herring, it's also an ad hominem fallacy. But that's not something, that's not really something they mentioned in the paper. In, in the paper here, uh, that that is a way that we can go. But in the paper, they're more specifically just kind of accepting, okay, if they're, what if they're correct about these inconsistency arguments? If they're correct about the inconsistency arguments, what follows from that? And so that's what they're going to talk about uh, mostly in this paper. And by the way, the paper is only about uh, six pages long, so it's not very long at all. If uh, if you do want to get a copy of it to read it,
1: it's also fairly reasonable. There's not a whole lot of jargon in it, and in areas where there is medical jargon, they try to make sure to clarify what they mean.
0: Yeah, I I mean, you know, it's an academic paper, so you're going to get a little bit here and there, but but yeah, it's always clarified. You know, like spontaneous abortion, of course, is understood as miscarriage. They refer to opponents of abortion as OAs, but you know, they, they clarified what they mean by that and things like that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's not super, super technical. So anyone who doesn't have training in philosophy or is not an academic themselves won't have any sort of difficulty. Well, there, there might be one section, which there might, might be a little, uh, might be a little unclear because I had to read it a, a few times before I, I fully understood what they were saying, but yeah, for the most part, it's uh, it's, it's fine. Okay, so I'll go ahead and read this next section here, which is about inconsistency arguments. And so they're going to outline more of the inconsistency arguments that they're addressing here. So it says examples of inconsistency arguments include criticism of opponents of abortion for their one alleged silence or lack of concern regarding spontaneous abortion. Two, refusal to adopt unwanted children, and three, refusal to adopt and implant surplus cryopreserved embryos. Simcolet, for example, accuses opponents of abortion of hypocrisy when they do not adopt and raise children as they, quote, are asking others to do things that they are unwilling to do themselves, end quote. Bovins criticizes opponents of abortion for opposing contraceptives that may have abortifacient tendencies while endorsing the, the, quote, rhythm method, end quote, which may cause more embryonic death overall. Harris chastises opponents of abortion who permit natural reproduction but prohibit creation of embryos for research, since both processes require, quote, sacrifice of embryos in pursuit of another supposedly beneficial objective, end quote. Stratton suggests that if opponents of abortion believed ab- abortion were murder, they would seem to be, quote, justified in killing an abortion doctor who is about to perform an abortion, end quote. Recently, those who self-identify as pro-life have pejoratively been labeled, quote, pro-birth, end quote, given that they oppose abortion while, allegedly, opposing health care and social support systems for children once born. Hence, opponents of abortion are seemingly inconsistent hypocrites who either do not believe what they profess or fail to live accordingly. There are several complications for inconsistency arguments, however. First, opponents of abortion are not a uniform population. Second, demonstrating inconsistency is far harder than critics presume. Third, even when inconsistency arguments work, they are either insignificant or lead to troubling consequences for critics. We will consider each complication in turn. So just for a, a quick summary of that section that we that I just read, they outline several inconsistency arguments, not just the three that they outlined in the introduction, but a few more. Some which actually a lot of these are said at the at the street level. These are arguments that Nathan and I actually hear quite a bit. The one that Colgrove at all alluded to from from Stretton, who's philosopher Dean Stretton, about if abortion really is murder then w- we would seem justified in killing an abortion doctor who is about to perform an abortion. From certain philosophers I've interacted with, I've heard them say that this is a topic that's kind of under-addressed from pro-life people. But I know that some pro-life people have addressed this. Uh, you know, uh, I've addressed it. I know uh, Josh Brahm has addressed it. But inconsistency arguments tend to not be as widely addressed among pro-life advocates, because really, you know, it's it's a red herring and it it makes an ad hominem attack against pro-life people. And that it's trying to argue that because pro-life people are inconsistent, they don't really believe what it is they say they believe. And so that's why a lot of these inconsistency arguments tend to, you know, not get a lot of attention among pro-life thinkers, especially in books and articles written academically you know really each of these topics could probably provide enough fodder for an episode on themselves and so you know it's not really my desire to really address all of these themselves so i just really want to just focus on each of these as a group and just talk about the arguments against them that colgrove et al present in this paper here my purpose for saying that is just so that you know i don't want anyone thinking that we're just kind of uh brushing over you know each of these we could respond to them all but this episode might be an hour or two longer if we really gave them all a, the attention that they deserve. Okay, so scrolling down here, the next section is diversity among opponents of abortion. And I don't really need to to read this section. I'll just kind of summarize it. It's essentially that opponents of abortion have a diversity of views. So, you know, no opponent of abortion is merely an opponent of abortion, but they have other views which might affect the way that they behave regarding abortion. They have different reasons for being pro-life, essentially. And so if if they're going to be accused of inconsistency in terms of their priorities and or actions, it requires more than mere hand-waving. In other words, it's not something that can just be dismissed as pro-life inconsistency, but the other views that the pro-life person holds must be taken into account. For example, if you're talking to a pacifist who's pro-life, well, a pacifist believes that violence is always wrong. So, if someone is a pacifist and believes it's always wrong to do violence against another human being, well, then you can't charge that pro-life person with inconsistency who also believes that it's wrong to kill abortion doctors because his pacifism prevents him from being able to to kill someone in order to to affect good so the fact that there are a diversity of views among opponents of abortion shows that inconsistency views or inconsistency arguments are inadequate against pro-life people because it fails to take into consideration this of views. So then another problem with, this, with these inconsistency arguments is what they call the other-belief subjection, and they uh, abbreviate other-belief subjection by OBO, but I'll just read it as other-belief subjection. And I'll go ahead and read this section here because uh, it's worth considering. This and uh, the next section uh, are both important. So this is the other-belief subjection. The other-belief subjection to premise one, so premise one being that were opponents of abortion consistent, they would act in some way as to be consistent with their views. So the other belief objection to that premise points out that our beliefs are not held in isolation. We all hold a wide variety of beliefs that influence our actions. It is overly simplistic to claim that a given belief entails acting in a specific manner. Other beliefs must be considered. So to illustrate, consider an argument suggested by Stratton. If opponents of abortion really believed abortion were murder, they would seem to be justified in killing an abortion doctor who was about to perform an abortion. Opponents of abortion that do not kill abortion doctors caught in the act, therefore, are said to reveal that they do not really believe abortion is murder. In response, all an opponent of abortion has to do is explain that they do believe abortion is murder, but that this belief is one of many others they hold. Others may include the beliefs that any act of killing another human being is morally wrong and that utilitarianism is wrong, so killing the abortion doctor would not be justifiable even if it prevented future killings. When we conjoin the proposition abortion is murder with propositions like any act of killing is morally wrong and utilitarianism is wrong, we will not expect individuals who accept these propositions to kill abortion doctors. Their failure to kill does not imply that they doubt that abortion is murder. Rather, other beliefs block their willingness to kill. Put differently, conjoining the belief that abortion is murder with the belief that killing is wrong and utilitarianism is wrong changes the demands of consistency. Stratton's argument is inapplicable to opponents of abortion who also believe things like, one, killing is wrong, two, killing is only permissible when carried out by the justice system, and so on. In these cases, stating one's other beliefs derails Stratton's argument. More formally, the other beliefs objection states that even if some proposition A implies another, C, it may be that the conjunction of A with another proposition, B, implies that C is false. And they provide an example here to illustrate that rule of thumb they just said here. So imagine Sue believes there is a tiger in her house. We might expect her to believe she is in danger. Her failure to believe she is in danger, therefore, might lead us to question whether she really believes a tiger is present. Yet, supposed to explains that she believes there is a tiger present and believes that it is perfectly tame. Her failure to believe that she is in danger no longer gives us any reason to doubt that she believes a tiger is present. Her failure to believe she is in danger is explained once we take stock of her other beliefs. The other beliefs objection is is especially effective when deployed against the most common inconsistency arguments, which state that if opponents of abortion were consistent, they would do much more to prevent spontaneous abortion than induced abortion. So suppose opponents of abortion believe that we have a far greater obligation to stop killing than prevent naturally occurring death. Coupling that kind of belief with the opponents of abortions position, for example, belief that embryos are persons undermines any reason for thinking they would or should prioritize prevention of spontaneous abortion rather than induced abortion. Okay. We can go and uh, pretty much stop there because that's, uh, that's basically the gist of the objection is essentially that a pro-life person may have, other beliefs which prevent them from acting in such a way. So again, returning back to the pacifist, the pacifist might believe that killing a person in any case is wrong. So if a person is pro-life but also a pacifist, then of course they're going to believe that it's not permissible to kill an abortion doctor to prevent that doctor from performing for abortions, from killing other individuals. And as as we've seen from other pro-life advocates, there are also pragmatic reasons to suppose we shouldn't be killing an abortion doctor. And as I was thinking over this paper, I was actually thinking about the political situation right now, because we see here we have President Trump, who is going to have to relinquish the White House in six days. And back on the 6th, when the uh, electoral votes are being counted, there was a huge protest in D.C. from Republicans and, and other Trump supporters and they ended up rioting in uh, the Capitol building, which resulted in the deaths of five people. And now, after that has happened, we see now that President Trump is actually reaping the consequences of that. Even though he did call for for peace, he wanted everyone to remain peaceful, uh, he's been expelled essentially from social media, from Twitter, from Facebook, from all these sites because of the violence that his followers committed at, at the Capitol building uh, we're also seeing that other right-wing sites and conservatives are being are now being punished on social media too uh, for example the the site parlor has actually been banned from Amazon servers uh, and other Twitter users other, other conservative Twitter users are being banned from social media so effectively removing them from the national conversation about whatever they want to talk about so you know I'm not here trying to political or anything, but we are seeing that the violence in the Capitol building on the 6th is having extreme repercussions to President Trump and his followers, which is actually removing them from the public conversation uh, on politics and on whatever topics they want to talk about. So as pro-life people, whatever we think morally about whether or not it's okay to kill an abortion doctor, we also have to weigh the pragmatic concerns such that if pro-life people were going around killing abortionists bombing abortion buildings, those kinds of things, well, the, pro, the pro-life the pro movement would be labeled as a terroristic movement, and that would heavily, heavily affect our ability to make a case against abortion in the public square, against trying to pass laws against abortion, that kind of thing. So there are pragmatic concerns to consider as well.
1: Right. And we have seen that play out, actually, even last year when the Black Lives Matter movement, even when peaceful protests were overshadowed by violent ones, It caused, if you look at the polling data, it caused support for the movement to fall. And the movement had to to sort of uh, reckon with itself and say, you know, we probably shouldn't be tolerating violence. Because when you start, when you resort to violence and you resort to intimidation tactics, people remember that. They don't actually remember what you have to say that's positive. Uh, It was the same thing for the abolitionist movement in this country. When the abolitionist movement resorted to violent tactics such as the John Brown raid in Virginia, People remember that they didn't remember the actual message of the abolitionist movement, which is that slavery is wicked and we need to abolish it. And that's why peaceful and nonviolent tactics have always been beneficial and successful and violent and extreme tactics have usually always backfired
0: on movements. Yeah. So aside from moral concerns, there are also pragmatic concerns that you have to consider as well. Okay. So another section here where they talk about another objection to these kinds of arguments is the other actions objection? The other beliefs objection shows that other beliefs held by opponents of abortion must be considered before making accusations of inconsistency. Another independent complication for the consistency arg- for the inconsistency argument is this: as we examine examine premise one again, the premise that if opponents of abortion were consistent, they would act in some way as to as to be consistent, or if OAs were consistent, they would z. Uh, Further consideration may find that if opponents of abortion were consistent, they might also reasonably Z1, Z2, etc. In other words, there are other actions that they might also reasonably take to be consistent with their beliefs. Are, in other words, there are often many different options for acting on one's beliefs. And frequently, finite resources and legal restrictions make available only a limited subset of those options. By comparison, consider the principle underlying the effective altruism movement. Do the most good one can. There are many different views on what this means and how it might be achieved. Peter Singer makes numerous suggestions, for example, living frugally, donating substantial amounts of income to effective charities and working in organizations that pay well or have a direct impact on the needy. It may be unclear, however, which option is superior. Many considerations apply to each, and they may be highly individualistic. Some people may not have the skills or education to work in a high-paying field and may be better suited to directly working in charitable organizations. General propositions like, do the most good one can, or all embryos have high moral value, do not translate into action clearly for particular individuals given variations in skills, opportunities, and resources. Objectively evaluating options to determine the most appropriate action for a particular belief held by a specific individual seems a very difficult task. Moreover, critics are unlikely to be in possession of the same set of facts as the individuals being criticized, and so may come to different conclusions." So then this argument here is essentially just stating that we we talked about how different pro-life people might have different beliefs, which can cause them to act in different ways regarding their pro-life views. But now we see that the argument being made here is that pro-life people have access to different kinds of resources. You know, one pro-life person might be able to affect change in a certain field, but another pro-life person might not have the resources or the the skills or the knowledge to do that. And, you know, we we see that in the pro-life movement. We have politicians who are working to oppose abortion in the political sphere. And those of us who are not politicians don't have access to those kinds of tools for opposing abortion. Uh, Then there are some who work at pregnancy resource centers and are able to give resources to pregnant women in need that way. Uh, Then you have other pro life people who are rich and are able to donate to good pro life causes. You know, you have different pro life people that have different sets of resources that are able to affect change in different ways. So we can't just say that there's one size fits all argument that can make, you know, a pro-life person consistent. You know, we t- we talked about embryo adoption. You know, obviously not all of us are women. As much as I believe in adoption, it's just not possible for me to ever uh, adopt an embryo because men can't get pregnant. So embryo adoption is not a possibility for someone like me and for someone like Nathan. But I do speak out against the creation of embryos in the lab and against embryo destruction and things like that. So I'm consistent in my arguments, but Obviously, I just can't adopt embryos because I don't have the the proper hardware for that.
1: One other point I would make on that is when in in the article, they also touch on the argument that, you know, you're not adopting unwanted children or you're not adopting embryos. So you must not see them as fully human. One point, why is it for some reason, this only seems to make sense when it comes to life in the womb. It would never make sense if we applied this to life outside the womb. So nearly everybody agrees that killing two year olds is wrong. Now, somebody came along and said, well, you know, you say that killing two-year-olds is wrong, but you're not actively going out and adopting unwanted orphans like two-year-olds and three-year-olds, so you must be inconsistent. Well, yeah, maybe I might. Even if I was inconsistent, that doesn't prove that it's okay to kill two-year-olds. It's the same thing here. They're ignoring the argument we're making and making a a character attack, a ad hominem attack on us, instead of actually interacting with their argument that the unborn is a full person from time to begin to exist. And then even like you just said, some of us were just not capable of adopting right now. I mean, I plan to adopt someday, but I can't do it right now. I'm just not at a point in my life where I would be able to. That said, somebody could point to that and say, oh, well, that shows that you're inconsistent. I'm going, because you can't afford to raise a child, but somebody who's in an unwanted pregnancy, they can't do that either. But you oppose abortion for them. Well, there's a difference between the abortion debates, not over which children or whether or not we should all parent children. It's over whether or not we should kill unborn children. That's what we need to focus on. Even if I am inconsistent, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong about that. It might just mean I haven't thought it entirely through.
0: There's one more argument, um, which we can highlight here. They have a couple arguments after this one, but this one here, we'll go ahead and read the section and then we'll just kind of summarize the others because this is kind of an important one too. And so this section in the paper is called The Significance of Hypocrisy. So they write, these objections notwithstanding, perhaps some opponents of abortion do act in ways that can be shown to be inconsistent with their beliefs. If so, then they are hypocrites. Hypocrisy is a serious charge regarding the character of opponents of abortion, but it has nothing to say regarding the validity and consistency of their beliefs. And opponents of abortion's beliefs are surely what critics would primarily be targeting. After all, hypocrisy is a human weakness that is widely shared, a fact well understood for millennia. The charge can be met with the admission, I do believe what I claim to believe, but I have failed to act accordingly. For example, most of us fail to assist starving children as much as we believe we should or could. Yet this failure does not imply that our belief that we should assist starving children is false. Of course, it is reasonable to point out hypocrisy in opponents of abortion where it is discerned, but critics should be clear that this does not discredit opponents of abortion's beliefs and arguments. This matters because the supposed hypocrisy of opponents of abortion, rather than the soundness of their beliefs and arguments, is the focus of most inconsistency arguments of which we are aware. Simcolet, for example, highlights opponents of abortions, quote, hypocrisy, end quote, suggesting they are, quote, merely fair weather defenders of life, end quote. Lovering concludes opponents of abortion are, quote, morally criticizable, end quote, and possibly living, quote, morally forbidden, end quote, lifestyles. Berg argues opponents of abortion, quote, do not actually believe in the person and of all fetuses, end quote. Grisly argues opponents of abortion either do not really believe, quote, that full-fledged humanity, end quote, or, quote, personhood, end quote, begins at conception, end quote, or they are quote, disingenuous, end quote, when acting as though late-term abortions are worse than early-term abortions. Opponents of abortion, therefore, are variously labeled as hypocritical, fair-weather, morally blameworthy, deluded, self-deceived, and or disingenuous, but nothing here threatens the truth of opponents of abortion's claims. For example, that abortion is impermissible. As Beckwith states, arguments and not the people who offer them are the proper object of analysis, and so inconsistency arguments, such as these, target the wrong object. Moreover, critics are faced with a dilemma when they denounce opponents of abortion as hypocrites. Either they are suggesting opponents of abortion act in a manner more consistent with their beliefs, or they are implying opponents of abortion should change their beliefs because the associated costs are excessive. Neither option is desirable. Encouraging opponents of abortion to act more consistently with their beliefs may not be desirable from the point of view of critics. Consider Stretton's argument. If consistency demands that opponents of abortion kill abortion doctors, it would be better if opponents of abortion remain inconsistent, and Stretton agrees. So why encourage opponents of abortion to be consistent? Relatedly, some authors claim opponents of abortion should spend substantial amounts of money on preventing spontaneous abortion, which would almost certainly divert massive amounts of funds and attention away from heart disease, cancer, and the flu. Do these critics believe such a shift in funding would be a good thing? Clearly not. So why encourage opponents of abortion, hundreds of millions of people, to advocate for such negative changes? Yes, it is a call for opponents of abortion to act with more moral responsibility, which is presumably good for them. But from the critics' perspective, the negative costs seem incredibly high. That's an important point too, is that critics are acting that pro-life people should act more consistently, but the critics of abortion obviously think that if pro-life people acted more consistently by killing abortion doctors, by diverting funds away from cancer, uh, heart disease research, etc., these would be bad things. So why are critics of the opponents of abortion working so hard to try and convince pro-life people to be more consistent? It it seems that they're encouraging uh, these uh, negative outcomes to occur.
1: Something else that just came to mind is they also ignore that we might have pragmatic reasons for focusing on what we do. And I have heard this argument sometimes made is that, you know, why are we spending so much time on, you know, late-term abortion when IVF clinics kill prenatal human beings in the form of early embryos. And I remember the first time I heard it, I was going, you know, that's a good question. But then it kind of dawned on me that actually it's not, we do believe that both are equally human the problem is most of the culture doesn't, and we're still having a hard time communicating that even a child just before birth is still deserving the same care and protection we are. When New York State legalized late-term abortions, they lit up the World Trade Center bright pink, and that raises a lot of significant questions in itself, such as that, well, if this if late-term abortions are only reserved for the most horrible of circumstances, then why are we celebrating it? But at the same time, since we are having a hard enough time even convincing people that even... A late term or even a, a newborn is deserving of our protection we have people now advocating for infanticide if we're having a hard enough time convincing people that infanticide is wrong we're going to have an even harder time convincing people that early destruction of embryos for research is a hard, is morally wrong as well so part of it's just pragmatic we're focusing on communicating to people what they're going to be more receptive to hearing people are going to be more receptive to hearing that late-term abortion is wrong and then we can start working backwards and say well you know if it's wrong at 36 weeks, why isn't it wrong at 32 weeks? Well, if it's wrong at 32 weeks, maybe it's wrong at 28 weeks and so on and so forth. So part of it's just pragmatic on us. It's not, we're going to focus on where we're going to be able to achieve small victories in order to achieve an overall victory.
0: And Colgrove et al. do make a similar point, actually, in their next section. The next section is called Other Possibilities for Successful Inconsistency Arguments. And I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of summarize these last two points that the authors here make. The first point is actually very similar, in in which uh, these inconsistency arguments are supposed to be a sort of reductio ad absurdum against the pro-life view. But if we look at what a reductio ad absurdum actually is, there's a strong form of it and a weak form of it. The strong form is where it's it's an actual, it's not really a logical fallacy, but it's it's a way where you can take someone's argument and then basically show that it leads to an absurd result. And by an absurd result, it doesn't mean something that we find ridiculous. You know, like they often say, if you believe self-awareness is what grounds personhood, then you have to believe in infanticide is permissible. Well, that's not strictly speaking a reductio ad absurdum, or at least it would be a reductio ad absurdum in the weak sense that's meant here. The strong form of the reductio ad absurdum is where it leads to an actual absurdity. And what that means is a self-contradiction, because if something is a contradiction, an actual contradiction, then they cannot both be true because two contradictory statements must have opposite truth values. So if two statements are, are contradictory, like um, if I were to say it is raining outside, and it is not raining outside. That would be a contradiction because you cannot believe both to be true. Either one is true or the other is true, but they cannot both be true and they cannot both be false. So an actual contradiction must have two opposite truth values. So a reductio ad absurdum takes someone's argument and essentially reduces it to absurdity by showing that it leads to a contradiction. And that's what a reductio ad absurdum is in the logical sense. But In the more colloquial sense, there's a weak form of it, which says that we can take someone's view, show that it leads to an absurd result, and by absurd result, we mean a result that someone who is reasonable or moral would not believe, and show that we should reject the original argument on those grounds. And so in that case, we can show that these inconsistency arguments are of the weak form, because they don't lead to an actual self-contradiction, because someone might have views which can adjust how they act as a pro-life argument, but it could be a reductio ad absurdum in the weak form because the conclusions might contradict generally held opinions and so one one of the cases that they make here is actually the case of donating money toward miscarriages the thing is that because pro life people see uh, you know they make a distinction between killing and letting die so if you if you kill somebody it's it's a moral crime but if you let someone die it's not a moral crime or if you let someone die when you have the capability of rescuing them it's still not as wrong as actually murdering somebody so pro life people often see elective abortion as, as a much bigger problem than miscarriage because. People die, you know, everyone dies naturally. Some people, you know, just die at different ages. And so pro-life people might see elective abortion as a much bigger problem than miscarriages. And so that's why they devote most of their time and resources toward trying to prevent abortion when they don't spend as much trying to prevent miscarriages, because there's no moral crime happening by a miscarriage because it's the embryo or fetus dying naturally. So it's it's a much more pressing concern to send our, our resources toward ending elective abortion. There's that consideration. And then the final consideration they have is simply that, as it says here in this in, in one of these last paragraphs here, that perhaps inconsistency arguments can be developed to expose opponents of abortion as having some genuinely contradictory beliefs regarding the moral status of embryos and fetuses or other beliefs relevant to abortion ethics. Successful inconsistency arguments of this kind would have serious implications for opponents of abortion's beliefs, since opponents of abortion would have an epistemic responsibility to revise their beliefs in order to resolve the contradiction. It is important that critics advance such arguments that these kinds of contradictions are discovered. We are, however, unaware of any inconsistency, Consistency arguments that successfully demonstrate contradictory beliefs on the part of opponents of abortion. So whether we take the reductio ad absurdum in the strong sense in which it leads to a self-contradiction or in the weak sense in which it generates a conclusion that contradicts generally held opinions, in both cases, pro-life views are not inconsistent in either of those ways.
1: I just remembered an argument actually somebody did make that would fall into the category of a weak reductio ad absurdum. I don't remember exactly who made it. I know it's quoted in Frank Beckwith's book, Defending Life, because he has a response to it. Uh, There was an author one time who said that if we accept the view that an early embryo has value, then we're going to have to accept the conclusion that a woman has no more value or a woman's body is no more important than an early embryo. And first, Frank Beckwith points out, he goes, Well, first, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that. An adult woman has a lot of attributed value or attributed dignity, as Chris Kayser would put it, but both that adult woman in her adult form and then also as an early embryo has intrinsic dignity, which means we shouldn't intentionally kill her. As an early embryo, she probably wouldn't have been able to compete in a beauty pageant, whereas now she might win a beauty pageant. That's an example of attributed, attributed dignity, whereas intrinsic dignity would be an example of she has that value regardless of how she looks and at any stage of her life. And that's why we shouldn't kill her is because she has a value that um, in virtue of what she is. So that, that argument was kind of a example of, I guess, a weak uh, reductio where, you know, if you accept this view, then you have to accept that women have no value in the first place, which is, it's nonsense actually, because that's not what we're saying. What we are saying is that human beings have value in such a way that they shouldn't be intentionally killed. And if that view has a contradiction, then they have to point out that contradiction. But Pointing out that we're inconsistent in our beliefs or in our attitudes on certain actions is not really enough. An example that came to mind when we were talking about miscarriages in a lot of underdeveloped nations, uh, the child mortality rate is very high. But we wouldn't say that those nations that it's permissible to intentionally kill children, even though many children don't make it to be teenagers and adults later on. And even in the United States, it used to be that way. We're dealing with two different arguments there. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we don't have a duty to intervene to make sure that somebody doesn't die from natural causes. And in one of the footnotes of the article that you point out that somebody has argued that and they said, well, you know, not intervening is the same as intentionally killing somebody. But I think that's a bit of a stretch there, because if somebody has a terminal disease, that's going to kill them anyways. Letting them die of that natural cause doesn't seem the same as going in and directly killing them, like unplugging them from their life support. That seems like two morally different actions. I do kind of personally wonder if in the next maybe 10 years or so, we find out what the cause of the high rate of miscarriages is. And even we've talked with Maureen Kondik about that, and she thinks that the number is a bit overstated, partially because it comes from fertility clinics where right. people already are having a problem getting pregnant and staying pregnant. If we found a way, we found what the cause of the high miscarriage rate was, and then it suddenly dropped, I have to wonder sometimes is what are people going to do with that argument? Uh, oh, you know, the high rate of miscarriages shows you're inconsistent. Well, maybe it shows we are inconsistent, but miscarriage rate drops, what do we do now? Are you bringing it up is even kind of just, it's a red herring. It, it has no bearing on the discussion at hand.
0: The numbers of embryos and fetuses that miscarry is, is almost certainly overblown. Because you know, there's no way to know how many conceived embryos are flushed out of a woman, woman's body, and also there are a number of non-human entities which yep. can be conceived at fertilization, which contribute to the number of miscarriages a woman might have. Uh, because you know, it, it's not an actual miscarriage because she's not actually pregnant with an, with an embryo, but it can act as a miscarriage and make her think that she miscarried. There's just no real way to know how many miscarriages there are, and there may be no way to prevent some miscarriages. You know, how are doctors or scientists supposed to come up with a way to prevent a miscarriage of an embryo traveling down the fallopian tube on the way to a uterus? You know, it's like there there are some miscarriages which are not likely ever to be able to be fully prevented. So, you know, we need to dedicate our, our money and our resources toward those things which we have a much better chance of preventing. You know, and on top of that, we already do a significant, amount now to prevent a woman from miscarrying you know we, we tell her uh, you know don't smoke and drink when you're pregnant don't overexert yourself we tell her to see a doctor regularly to make sure the pregnancy is progressing we have certain types of operations we can perform now so you know th- there are things that we can do in order to help prevent miscarriages but some types of miscarriages are not likely to ever be able to be prevented you know things like that need to be taken into consideration too.
1: Yeah, and I can actually see a lot of pro-lifers if in the near future we find the causal link that is contributing to miscarriages. I can see a lot of pro-lifers actually devoting time and resources to making sure women know to avoid that causal link, maybe something that's in their diet, maybe something that's in the environment or something that may just be genetic. I can see a lot of pro-lifers devoting a lot of time and resources if that causal link was ever or the cause of miscarriage was ever really discovered. So I don't think it's entirely an example of inconsistency. I think it's just an an example of people trying to be wise with where their resources are going.
0: Okay. Well, next Wednesday, we're going to be bringing on Stacey Trisenkos who has a degree in biology, but also in uh, systematic theology. And she's going to talk about fetal research. We've all heard about things like using fetal cells for vaccines. Well, I recently learned about different ways in which fetuses and embryos are used for medical research, and so, so I, I reached out to, to Stacy, who wrote an article that I that I read about fetal research, and asked her to come on the show. And so she's going to be on next week, and we're going to talk about the various ways that embryos and fetuses are used for research, and possibly what we can, what we as pro life people can do to oppose this kind of research. So it's going to be a great episode next week. If you are able and you would like to be, to be a financial supporter of the podcast you can go to the life training institute website at prolifetraining.com click on the donate button uh, and make sure to put my name in the notes section so that life training institute knows to put your donation into my account and donations are tax deductible you can also find us on patreon at patreon.com prolife thinking in which there are some great perks if you would like to help financially uh, contribute to the podcast because I have a lot of things I'd love to do with the podcast but we need to get make sure the finances are there before we do it to, to ensure that the podcast can be the best that it possibly can be. So on behalf of uh, Nathan and myself and the Pro-Life Thinking Podcast, thank you for watching, and we'll see you next time.